great to be here with you, to dwell with you together in this place at this time, uh, as always. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that on Sundays in Lent, we're working through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, which is uh, a lot of stories there about the young nation of Israel uh, as they journeyed out in the wilderness in the desert place uh, for 40 years. And in conversation with these stories, we're thinking about uh, finding God in the wilderness places of our own lives, because we've all got those kind of places, places where we feel like we're not in control, places where we lack clarity, places where we feel really vulnerable. Some of you feel that way right now. Uh, but here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that it's in those types of places that God is present uh, and that God is meeting us in those types of places to show us the ways of true life. Over the past three weeks, we've talked about how Israel found God's fullness in the wilderness. We've talked about how they came to trust His provision. We've talked about how God told them to own their limits, to embrace their limits. And then last Sunday, Patrick talked about uh, the lesson on turning away from idols, from idolatry. Uh, and as I've been reflecting on this list of stories and lessons, I found myself asking a, a certain question. Maybe you've been asking it too. And the question is this, what if I can't do all that? Uh, what if I stink at it? You know, what, if, what about those of us who can't always resist our idols, uh, those of us who can't always embrace our limits? And we all know that those are not hypothetical questions. They're not for me, at least, uh, which is precisely why today's story has been a source of great consolation, because this story brings us one of the central words from Exodus. And what is that word? That word is that we are to count on God's mercy. We are to count on God's mercy. We are to trust that God is merciful to us and gracious, and that part of our call in the midst of our frailty is to believe that and to try to live by that with one another. That's the point of the story that we've just had read for us from Exodus 34. Before we plunge into that story, let's pray. Merciful Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide, and uh, may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Amen. So let me begin by briefly reminding you about what's happening at this point in the Exodus narrative. We're in Exodus 34 today. Back in Exodus 32, God and Moses did the exact same thing that they do in Exodus 34 today. Back in Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes up to the mountain to get God's law. God enters into a covenant with his people. But guess what's happening at the bottom of the mountain at that exact moment? A wicked and wild party. God's people, the Israelites, are down there in the valley worshiping another god, a false god, visualized as a golden calf, because that's how they did it back in Egypt. And in that valley, the Israelites are flagrantly breaking God's commands, and as a result of this, there ends up being this huge mass murder where 3,000 of them kill each other. It's just piles of bodies. That's what's at the bottom of the mountain. It's awful. And now in today's story, we come to a moment where God, in His staggering mercy, says, let's have a second go. Let's try again. That's what's happening in Scripture. Let me say something now about what's happening in our world. In every age, I think it's safe to say this, in every age people are tempted by the vanity that they are unique, that they live in an absolutely unique cultural historical moment. It's probably a vanity. Even so, I think in our moment we could not be faulted for concluding that we live in a world which has indeed uniquely lost its mind in some ways. Uh, think about this. We are spewing poisonous words all over one another on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we're spewing them to each other out there on Highway 17. That happened to me a few times this week. I received some and I gave some. <laughs> uh, 
We're abducting one another as objects of our desire or as currency for the, all the ideological wars that are being waged right now. We're shooting one another in schools and churches and soccer stadiums and restaurants. We're bombing one another in the markets and places of worship, and uh, we're doing that with unmanned, unmanned airplanes in the sky. Uh, we are destroying ourselves with hatred. That's what happened to one of my favorite worship leaders. Some of you might know her. Her name is Audrey Assad. She's a Syrian-American. She has a beautiful voice. She writes beautiful music. I always listen to it during Lent. A few years ago, Audrey took a position on refugees that some people didn't like, even though lots of Christians historically have taken a similar position. And the social media hate mob set out to pound her, and they did, and they did it mercilessly. And it was shameful. And she doesn't sing anymore. And that breaks my heart. And so it seems like we live in a totally merciless world. And it seems like there's not much we can do about it. And when we attempt to respond to this state of affairs, often the strategy is equally as ruthless and merciless. It's like we have shed ourselves of all wisdom and pity and mercy towards one another. And we see examples of this every week, every day in the news, but also in our lives. In spats with our neighbors, spats with our HOAs, spats at our golf clubs. In our businesses, the Hatfield and McCoy spirit is alive and well. A world without pity, without mercy, is that what we want? It's not what I want. And I don't think it's what most of you want either. Notwithstanding the way that we've taken to behaving, I'm called to stand up here today and with a straight face to talk to you about mercy. Why? Because the Bible is true. And the text before us talks about mercy. It talks about the possibility of mercy and the hope and possibility and certainty of mercy. Now, at this point, I want to remind you that the young nation of Israel that we've been meeting in Exodus, uh, they are supposed to be a nation of mercy. God had taken them out of a really merciless situation, slavery in Egypt, and uh, He brought them into a new merciful situation of freedom. And so they were supposed to be a light. They were supposed to bear witness to God's better alternative of people who had lived without mercy, now living under and through mercy. In a merciless world, their distinctive was to be merciful. But instead of embracing that, instead of following the God who mercifully delivered them, they turned away from Him. They broke His law, they bowed down to a golden cow, and then they slaughtered 3,000 of themselves. Not very merciful, would you agree? So what does God do? If I was God, let's just say, <laughs> if I was God, let's just say I would not be meeting with these people. My lawyer, Chase, would be meeting with these people. And he would be dissolving my contractual obligations to them. And I'd be going to find another people that I could be merciful to. But that's not what God does. God comes out and he says, you know what? Mercy wins. My mercy is real and it's still for you. So how does this take hold? How does it plant and root in our lives? Two things we need to notice about this from the text. First of all, the Israelites have to recognize that mercy is something they need. Mercy is something they need. In other words, mercy is not just something for those other nations out there, those Canaanite pagan people, for those people who aren't in church this Sunday. Mercy is not just for them. God could have said, those Canaanites need mercy, so I want you to put your swords away, I want you to obey my law, and let's go show mercy to those Canaanites. Amen. That's right. But God didn't say that. God said, you need mercy. We need mercy. In other words, mercy begins with the people of God. And so if we're going to count on God's mercy, the first thing we have to do is to believe that we're a people who need it. Do you believe that? I actually think that is not easy to do. 
To be sure, at one level, I think we all know we need help. We know we need better policies. We know we need better education. We know the person over there needs a better haircut. We may know we need to go visit a spa this afternoon. We all know we need help, but do we need mercy? Do we really think we need mercy? Not really, I think. And that's arresting because one of the constant themes of the Bible is that every human, every man, woman, and child, everyone, you and me, we all need the mercy of God desperately. We need it desperately. And why do we need God's mercy so desperately? The text gives us several reasons today, and I think you'll relate to all of them. First, we need mercy because we've broken God's law. Pretty straightforward. And let's just say we're, a, we're repeat offenders. We are repeat offenders. Look at verse 1. This is both terrible and amusing. God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go cut the tables like the first ones you cut, on which I will write the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. That's kind of like rubbing it in. (laughs) And what God is saying, and you don't want to miss this, is Moses, if you're going to lead these people to a place of mercy, you're going to realize you need mercy first because you have broken my law, literally. And it wasn't just Moses who broke God's law. It was all the Israelites. Moses broke the tablets as a reenactment of what Israel was doing at the bottom of the mountain. They were breaking God's law. They were worshiping another God. And so Moses broke the tablets because they've all broken God's law. Every one of us has broken God's law. Even Mother Teresa. Even Mother Teresa broke God's law. And if you doubt this, and some of you are thinking, well, I don't know about that. If you doubt this, I want you to go home this afternoon, read the Sermon on the Mount, and score yourself. And tell me, if you come back and say, I had not done it all, I'll say, you're a liar. You're a liar. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. We all need God's mercy because we've all broken God's law. Second reason we need God's mercy is that we live under a curse. We live under a curse. Now, that might sound a little bit Sleeping Beauty, a little bit Snow White. I get that. But remember, however, the Bible talks about humanity as living under a curse. We live in a state of affliction. A veil of tears has fallen over us because of our sin. And you actually see that in today's passage, verse 2. You read there, Moses had to get up, struggle to climb back up that mountain to find God. And guess what? We were not made to struggle to have to find God. We were not made to struggle to have to find God. We were made to commune with God effortlessly in the garden and to dwell and live with God intimately. But now everything's a struggle. Certainly it is for me. So many days it's a struggle. So we live under toil. But not just toil. We also live with this sense of exile. That's verse 3. Did you notice that? Nobody else can go up there with Moses. Even the animals and the flocks, they have to stay away from that mountain. And we all have this sense of exile. Sin has estranged us from the one who created us. It's messed up everything. So there's toil and there's exile, but there's one more thing we've got to add to the list. There's judgment. I know that's not a popular word these days, but look at verse 7. Not an easy thing to talk about. God says, I'm not going to clear the guilty. Our iniquity is, in fact, visited upon us and on our children and on their children's children. And that is simply a comment about the fact that our sin continues to reverberate and echo in this world. Every stupid and selfish thing I does continues to reverberate and echoes in this world. That's what happens with sin. And so we need God's mercy because we've broken His law and we live under a curse. And because of that curse, we experience toil and exile and judgment. And so we need God's mercy. Now at this point, once again, I want to stress for you that everything we've just learned in these first verses, everything we've surveyed about needing God's mercy... That is not God talking about the Canaanites out there, those other people who need God's mercy. 
That is not talking about the people who are not in church this morning. We are talking, well, we're talking about Moses, the guy. That's who God is talking to here. And God is saying, you, Moses, need my mercy. And so in this moment when God is coming back to Israel, he teaches Moses that what he most needs is God's mercy, and not just Moses, but all of Israel, not just Israel, but all of us. And that theme rings throughout the Bible. Without God's mercy, I am nothing. I'm nothing. And that theme, that word, continues all the way to the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is revealing nothing other than what God revealed to Moses right here on top of the mountain. And Jesus did that through his words of confirmation. He did that through his actions of confrontation. And he did that through his merciless death on your behalf and my behalf on the cross. And so Jesus is the final and full revelation of what God taught Moses right here on Mount Sinai and what God is teaching all of us right now. He's teaching us that mercy starts with me. Look at your neighbor and say that. Mercy starts with me. All right, let's move on. One more thing that we need to highlight from this passage. Mercy is not only something that we need, it's also what God actually gives. And that's wonderful. I'm not sure what you think about God. I'm not sure whether everyone in this room is even a Christian. But this text tells us that God is a merciful God and His mercy is here for us to receive. And I think that can be hard. If I were to ask you to list things that you believe about God, what would you put on that list? I might put irritated. Powerful. Frightfully powerful. I might put glorious, I'd probably put sovereign, but I don't know if merciful would be the first thing I'd put on that list. Maybe it would be for you. If so, that's great. Nevertheless, in a moment like ours, in an age where there is so much pain, so much horrible stuff happening in the world, thinking of God as merciful can be not easy. But He is merciful. And our text introduces two crucial aspects of His mercy. First, I want you to understand that God's mercy is a daily hope. It's a daily hope. God's mercies are new every morning. Now, as we've said, everything here in chapter 32 has already happened before. This is a take two. This is a do-over, which means that God did not just cut his people off in response to their idolatry and lawlessness. He did not say, you know what? You said you weren't going to do that anymore. You said you weren't going to say that anymore. You said you weren't going to look at that thing again, and you did. So sayonara. That is not what God said. What God says is, you are still my people, and I love you. And that is such good news for me. And I hope I'm not the only one. And then God says, I'm going to write those tablets again. And so Moses goes back up that mountain. And that's me going back to God every day. Because that's what I have to do. And Moses gets up to the top of the mountain and God descends. And guess what God doesn't say? He doesn't say, Moses, you really botched it last time. So I'm not going to come down for a little while. It's a silent treatment for at least 80 days. That's not what God says. He reveals himself again. That's what he does. And so I want you to listen to me now. I know a lot of you think to yourselves, I just keep struggling with this sin or this shortcoming or this character flaw and I am uniquely wicked. You are not. And I know some of you are thinking to yourselves, maybe this week, maybe driving to church, maybe you're thinking it right now in church. You're thinking, God just can't deal with this issue in my life again. I'm so ashamed I keep having to come back to him and ask for mercy. He's going to get really sick of me doing that. You ever feel that way? I have. And I bet Moses did too. Because remember, here's someone that led God's people into a violent act where 3,000 of them died. 
This is someone who smashed the holy tablets. This guy has got to be on some big naughty list somewhere. And God says, I want you to come back, Moses. That is for us. That's daily hope. Mercy comes for us every day on an hourly basis, and that is so life-giving for me. So that shame voice in your head, that voice which says, I cannot go back to God. He's sick of my hypocrisy. That voice has nothing to do with this text or the Bible. God's mercy, however, is not just a daily hope. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is the heart of our passage. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now this strange, majestic encounter, who would have, I, w- I would love to have been there. This tells us that God's mercy is not just something on his daily to-do list. Mercy is God's heart. God wants us to see that mercy is what he is. Which means that when God extends mercy to you, to you, Todd, to you, Chase, to you, Ryan, to you, Mary, to you, Cindy, to me, Roger, when God does that, he is not just being nice because he has to, because Jesus went and died for you. Jesus is not arguing with the Father on your behalf, and the Father is not contractually obligated to show you mercy. That is not what's going on here. God is revealing his heart to us. And these are among the most important verses in the Bible, and they're used all over the Bible elsewhere. These are such important verses. I'm not a huge fan of tattoos, not against them, just not a huge fan, but if you want to get a tattoo, have these words tattooed on your body, have them shaved into the back of your head, do whatever you need to do, take these words to heart. Who is God? He's merciful. That's the first word. He's gracious and slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He keeps that love for thousands in contrast to the mere three or four generations that he doesn't. That's who God is. And I honestly think my main job in this world is to try to persuade you every week just how much God adores you, to show that to you with my my way I live my life and with my words and my sermons and just how cherished you are. Because all those self-hating things that you say to yourselves, and I know what they are because I have said them to myself, they are not true. God says to Moses, you want to know who I am, Moses? Merciful, that's the word. Gracious, that's the word. Slow to anger, that's the word. And some of us are going to have to have our emotional lives rewired to think about God this way towards us. But this is the real stuff. And so it comes to this, mercy is the demonstration of God's life. And that's the glorious thing. It is the glorious thing that God shows mercy to people like me who don't deserve it. And this is a turning point in the the Old Testament. And it continues right up to Jesus, who is the final expression in visible embodied form of what Moses only got to hear. And that means if you want to know what it's, it's like for God to be merciful and slow to anger, look at Jesus. He's the full disclosure of this. That's why the gospel writers, when they're talking about beholding Jesus, they always go back to this passage from Exodus 34. St. John says, we beheld him. We saw with our eyes, we touched with our hands the glory that Moses only heard about with his ears. And you know what that glory is? It is that God is gracious and merciful in his words, in his deeds, in his death for our sins, in his resurrection for our life. God is gracious and merciful in his ascension 
to govern over us in his merciful Pentecost, giving us so many gifts. He is merciful in his promised return through Jesus. We inhabit a story of mercy. We inhabit a story of mercy. And that is so, so important. And let me tell you why I think this is important. Because over the last five or six years, I've been seeing, and you've been seeing this too, just how merciless we can be to each other. Merciless in our politics. Merciless in our cultural disagreements. Merciless driving down Highway 17. Merciless in our work. Merciless in our churches. Merciless in our families. Merciless when people drop the ball, which is what people do. We drop the ball. I drop the ball. Merciless to ourselves when we come up short. And all of this has made me believe more than ever before that what the church needs to be for the world is a mercy-bearing community. So how do we do that? Let me leave you with two quick applicational thoughts. Just circling back to what I've already said. Number one, we got to know we need mercy. And that means you don't act like you've got it all together. I don't act like my life is devoid of failures and crises and shortcomings. That is not what our neighbors need. They need to look at us and to hear us say, first, I need mercy. Because I broke the law. I live under a curse and I need to be saved. There's a lot of temptation. You know this. When things start going crazy socially or culturally, for a lot of smug self-righteousness to start flowing right out of the church. We don't start there. We start instead with, I need mercy. If you're a person who tends to default towards needing to be right, I want you to spend some time thinking and praying, where do I need to learn this, that I need mercy? Ask Jesus to show you where you need mercy. Second, circling back to what I've already said, we need to know that God gives us mercy. Now, that's going to be really important for some of you, and I know some of you are in the room today who can relate to this. You are daily aware of how much you need God's mercy. You carry a heavy sense of that. You wake up every morning and you say, I checked that box. I started this new day believing that everything was wrong because of me. I've lived in that place. And so it can be a colossal struggle for some of us to understand that God forgives, that God is merciful. You feel like an imposter. So listen to me now. You're not. God loves you. He loves you every day. God loves you all the time. That will not change. His mercy is the bottom line. So you need to ask Jesus to help you rest in that truth every time the accusing voice sneaks back in. Christ's mercies are new each morning. They are new for you. They are new if you're sitting in prison. They are new if you're sitting in church right now being flooded by thoughts of self-loathing. They are new if you're sitting in the office being told off for some mistake. They are new when you're sitting in front of that screen looking at that profane image once again. They are new when you're sitting in the backyard sulking and self-condemning because you said something to your kids or spouse you regret or because maybe you said something in the worst way possible. That was me last week. We have this daily hope. We need to help each other fortify it. We can do a better job at that. A lot of people think mercy is weakness. Some of you might think mercy is weakness. I'm not naive. And you might be rolling your eyes right now. I know that. It is not. It is a witness to the living, risen Christ in a world that is often ruthless and pitiless. The world doesn't have to be that way. So let's count on God's mercy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen.